Pushkin. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex. Of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. There's a place in our world where the known things go. A corridor of the mind, lined with shelves, cluttered with proof. Inside, I've been cataloging my collection of evidence about propagandists, hypnotists, and conspiracy theorists, labeling reels with masking tape and sharpies, organizing them by date, reel after reel of tape. It's like the Nixon Oval Office in here. Recordings of the sorts of people we've been listening to all season, episode after episode. Yes, here's the man whose whole life is a constant worldwide hunt for facts. The man who makes his living by telling the truth. I want you to keep on going back and back and back in your mind. The wall of secrecy, the news media being silent, and the patsies locked up, and the psychological profile. Robert Ripley, Axis Sally, Maury Bernstein, Mae Brussel, Valentin Zorin. Each of them asking you, the listener, to doubt what you think you know. And very often that doubt is delivered through the medium of radio. I've got just one more of these voices. He's all the rest, all balled up together. You are, my friends, about to be exposed to the kind of bristling, cogent analysis available nowhere else. Because of this, your initial reaction may be shock and disbelief. That's the voice of Mr. Rush Limbaugh. And I'm Jill Lepore, host of a show that could hardly be more different from the Rush Limbaugh show. Welcome to The Last Archive, the show about how we know what we know and why sometimes it seems lately as if we don't know anything at all. Step over the threshold and along the passage of time to the year 1988. 
Don't fight it. Don't even try. Just surrender yourself. Surrender yourself. That's his mantra. It's not mine. My mantra is never surrender. What's the first thing you do when you get in the car? Click the seatbelt, switch on the ignition, turn on the radio. Gotta find the right station here. Hello there, you want the Zaire jingle? One gracious moment, sir. Boston weather are gonna be Good morning. Car radios first became common in the 1930s. For decades, radio was AM radio. Local stations, maybe, with some top-of-the-hour news. And a lot of sports. Red Baseball is brought to you by the First National Bank of Cincinnati, where your money grows safely in high-return certificates of deposit. Something else that had long been popular on AM radio? Gospel shows. The voice of the hour of decision, Billy Graham. So for you, for the nation, this is the hour of decision. By the 1970s, the most popular AM radio shows were drive time shows. The ones that aired during your commute. Rock and roll, hosted by fast talking DJs. 3 and 14K on the award-winning Jeff Christie Rock and Roll Radio Show with fun and frolic for all. Some of you, no doubt, still wondering what award I have won. I'll tell you, none other than the Marconi Award for Excellence in Broadcasting. That young buckaroo, that's the young Rush Limbaugh. Jeff Christie was his nom de radio back then. I want to congratulate our name and claim it winner, Jeff Rodman of Eastmont. And also, Jeff, I will send you two six-packs of carefree sugarless gum. You can chew it all day. Limbaugh was born in Missouri. He went to Southeast Missouri State University for a year, but dropped out to work in radio. In 1971, he got a job as a disc jockey at an AM station outside Pittsburgh. He got fired after a year and a half and went to a station called KQV. And that'll entitle you to 12 more entries for you in the Carefree Rock Concert Contest. New jackpot for tomorrow is $240.14. and Got it down so you can remember it. Bob DeCarlo makes the next call tomorrow. Limbaugh died in 2021 at the age of 70. His obituaries had headlines like, We're living in the world Rush Limbaugh created. And that's true. But even though you may think you know all the ways we now live in Rush Limbaugh's world, there's more to understand. It has to do with what a lot of this season has been exploring, how we hear voices on the radio. There were lots of testimonials to Limbaugh after he died, but one comment really stuck with me. A guy wrote on YouTube, his show was the only one that came in clearly. So I listened. Keep listening to the Jeff Christie Stardust Jockey Show for complete details about Limbaugh, even when he was Jeff Christie, He was a big guy, wide grin, waved his hands a lot, big personality. A little George Costanza meets Fred Flintstone. In 1974, he lost yet another job. He moved back home with his parents in Missouri. He was 23. It was a very tough time to try to make a career in AM radio, mainly because FM radio was on the rise. FM radio, a fade-free, static-free FM or FM stereo car radio. Sounds so great, it's out of sight. Starting in the 1950s, the era of Elvis, Little Richard, 
People bought FM radios for their houses, but the FM dial only really exploded in the 1970s, when for the first time you could get FM in your car. At this point, AM radio was mono. Just one track. FM was stereo. It was immersive. Naturally, everyone wanted to switch from plain old mono to stereo. You'd bring your car into the shop, and switch out your AM radio for an FM radio with stereo speakers. This change in the sound of radio from AM to FM would have vast repercussions for the history of knowledge. A very long reverb. AM radio suffered, listenership plummeted, and then so did ad revenue. By 1987, the majority of AM radio stations were no longer making a profit. And people who worked at AM radio stations in the 1970s were losing their jobs. Including in Kansas City, where Limbaugh, who'd been moving from job to job, had landed. All the DJs got fired. I was spared as assistant program director. And you know what that meant? Programming the automation machine. Limbaugh didn't last long as an assistant program director. He took a job instead with the Kansas City Royals baseball team. Meanwhile, AM radio stations were beginning to figure out that if they could leave music to the FM band and concentrate on talk shows, they could start making money again. In mono, talk sounds fine, even if you might not agree with what someone's saying. The simple fact of the matter is that the the homeless advocacy in this country is, is, I think, based upon fraud. In 1984, broadcasting under his own name, Limbaugh started a new kind of talk radio show in Sacramento on KFBK. He pretty much invented a whole new format. Soon, he had a deal for national syndication. The opinions expressed on the Rush Limbaugh program do not necessarily reflect those of WABC Radio or its management. And now, here's Rush Limbaugh. By the way, that's a gutless disclaimer. The views expressed by the host on this show ought to become federal law, and the station and sponsors ought to heartily endorse them. The Rush Limbaugh show was a one-way wall of talk. Limbaugh was funny, he was angry. His program started with a news digest, then a series of opinions mixed with calls from listeners who agreed with those opinions. You hear his voice now, and it sounds so utterly familiar. That's because it's the voice of the political YouTuber, or of a certain sort of podcaster. Brash, annoying, know-it-all. But it was a new voice then, and it spoke to listeners for three hours a day, five days a week. So to give you just a a bit of an idea uh, about this show, there are no guests, never. We don't talk about single issues or themes, ever, unless they evolve, as the program goes. Uh, it is it is pretty much an open line uh, discussion each and every day. Limbaugh revolutionized radio. Open line, it was all him. Even some of the ads. At a time when human resources departments were newly requiring sexual harassment training, Limbaugh spent a lot of his time on air attacking feminists, especially after Anita Hill accused Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas of sexual harassment. Limbaugh made a fake ad about feminazi trading cards. I'll give you two glorious items for Anita Hill. Trading cards have always been for males only. It's just not fair. It's not right. Damn, I spilled nail polish on my Betty Friedan. Feminazi cards are designed with a woman in mind. On the front. I remember in those years my dad listening to Limbaugh. It drove my mother nuts. I bet a lot of families had an experience like that. 
Limbaugh, he'd say it seemed anything. So partly people tuned in for the thrill of it, to hear what he'd say next. For the rest of us, though, it was like getting kicked in the face every day. He went after feminists. He liked to mock environmentalists, gays, and lesbians. He made a lot of jokes about AIDS. Despite, or really because of all that, Limbaugh's audience just grew and grew. Mainly that audience was men, white men who were angry, as angry as Rush seemed to be. Real wages for white men who hadn't gone to college were dropping. They're still dropping. Some of these guys really did have a lot to be angry about. Rush told them who to be angry at. The people who loved Rush, they called themselves ditto heads because they believed everything he said and would say it back. Ditto. Limbo's format, The Wall of Talk, pushed nearly everything else off talk radio. All the kooky chit-chat and cooking shows and carpentry shows and community theater. Everything. Meanwhile, radio stations, which for a long time had been mom-and-pop operations, were getting bought out by giant, consolidated national and even global corporations. Here, I've got to disclose something about that consolidation. The Rush Limbaugh show was eventually syndicated by an outfit called Clear Channel. More recently, Clear Channel rebranded itself as iHeart Media, and an arm of iHeart now sells ads for Pushkin Industries, which is the production house that makes The Last Archive. So this is like when the Washington Post reports on Amazon and then has to mention that the Post is owned by Jeff Bezos. Okay, The Last Archive is not the Washington Post, and iHeart doesn't own Pushkin. But still, it's important to disclose these things. Limbaugh liked to present himself as a cowboy, a maverick, bold, reckless, and unpredictable. In reality, he was more like the wonder bread of radio, the factory-made white bread of radio. He was the same every goddamn day. Rant, 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 ad, rant, rant, ad, rant, rant, big rant, station break, rant. What he was selling was his own predictability, three hours a day, five days a week. But the forces that had to do with Limbaugh's success had to do with more than just radio formats. For years, Limbaugh's fortunes rose while other medias fell. Daily newspapers were going out of business. Limbaugh didn't seem to mind. If you listen to this show every day, you never need to read another newspaper again. Never read another magazine. I do it for you, and you get a bonus. I tell you what to think about this incredibly complicated and controversial issue. I tell you what to think. And he wasn't joking. Limbaugh presented himself as a prophet. Liberals and feminazis, they were heretics. Limbaugh was talking politics, but his show was less like a news program than like those old radio gospel shows. Politics as preaching, listening as worship, conservatism as a new religion. Scholars call this political sectarianism. And in this era, sectarianism was headed to Washington. At GOPAC, our mission is to gain control of the U.S. House of Representatives. We're developing a farm team of future congressional candidates. That's audio from what's known as a GOPAC tape, one of the thousands of tapes made by a GOP political action committee that had become the mouthpiece for just one man. This is Congressman Newt Gingrich. As a candidate, you've probably been listening to tapes from GOPAC all year, and you know that we've emphasized certain basic ideas and certain basic approaches. Newt Gingrich, then a congressman from Georgia. Gingrich heard what Limbaugh was doing on air and in the late 1980s started to record his own version of that format through these GOPAC cassette tapes. If you were a Republican running for office or working on a campaign, you'd probably listen to these tapes in your car's cassette player. In this tape, 
We have a speech I gave to the Republicans in California. We decided to share it with you as an example of how you can bring all the basic values together. This is the sound of modern political history shifting gears and burning out the clutch. The tapes were mailed to thousands of people every month. One Republican from Minnesota told PBS's Frontline how crucial they were. When they would come, I mean, and you spent some time in a car, particularly going back and forth to the state legislature, uh, when they would come in the mail, I mean, I would open them up right away and I would put them in a cassette uh, player within 24 hours. The purpose of the tapes was to create a single national message for a conservative insurgency to make newt ditto heads. There are two movements in America. There's a left-wing radical movement, and there's a common-sense, practical, center-right majority, the basic conservatives. Let me give you an example of how we think you can draw those lines. Gingrich proposed a set of dualisms for candidates to use in ads. You might think this kind of hyper-polarized rhetoric is more recent, a product of social media, maybe. But you'd be wrong. We believe in locking up criminals, especially dangerous criminals, but allowing honest citizens to own guns. The radical left introduced a bill to legalize sex with animals. But we oppose legal sex with animals. In fact, frankly, we oppose any kind of sex with animals. In the early 1990s, in a memo sent out with the tapes, Gopak supplied candidates with a vocabulary list. It suggested words to use to help define your campaign. Change, opportunity, legacy, challenge, control, truth. Moral, courage, reform, prosperity, crusade, movement, children, family, debate, compete, humane, pristine, provide, liberty, commitment, duty, fair, protect, confident, incentive, hard work, initiative, common sense. Gopak also listed words to use to describe your political opponents. Words like sick, pathetic, liberal, lie. Shallow, traitors, sensationalists in danger, coercion, hypocrisy, radical, threaten, devour, waste, corruption, incompetent, permissive attitude, destructive, impose, self-serving, greed, cheat, steal, abuse of power, obsolete. This was political warfare on all fronts. Gingrich trained the officers. Limbaugh rallied the troops. Gingrich's political power grew, and so did Limbaugh's audience, to around 15 million listeners each week. In 1991, Limbaugh appeared on CBS's 60 Minutes. What are you trying to do with this show? I'm trying to attract the largest audience I can and hold it for as long as I can so that I can charge advertisers confiscatory advertising rates. This is a business. You're in it for the money? Uh, sure. Of course, I'm doing a lot of this for money. That's Limbaugh earning points for being honest. It's also a tactic Donald Trump would adopt. Honesty about loving money. Listeners adored it. For talk radio, the money came rolling in, and not just for Limbaugh. Between 1989 and 1994, an average of 20 new talk radio stations went into business every month. Their shows weren't all conservative, at least not at first. But soon station owners discovered that if they ran only conservative talk, they had more listeners. 
No sports, no rock, no information. For mindless chatter, we're your station. KBBL Talk Radio, and now Springfield's favorite conservative and author of the well-selling book, Only Turkeys Have Left Wings. Ladies and gentlemen, Birch Barlow. You know you're in the zeitgeist when you're satirized on The Simpsons. Good morning, fellow freedom likers. Birch Barlow, the fourth branch of government, the 51st state. The more famous Limbaugh got, the more worried observers got. Especially about how he talked about talk, how he talked about the freedom of speech, how he talked about fairness itself. This is also a benevolent dictatorship. I am the dictator. There is no First Amendment here except for me. Well, right. The First Amendment only constrains the government, not a privately owned radio station. But for most of the 20th century, there'd been some rules in place. Rules that date to a time when people understood just how dangerous radio could be if broadcasters became dictators. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. What? Oh my goodness. Radio Lab. Whoa. Adventures on the edge of what we think we know. In the 1940s, a guy named Clifford Durr got a job offer from President Roosevelt. Durr was a lawyer from Alabama. He's best known to history for something he did much later in the 1950s when he and his wife bailed Rosa Parks out of jail. Anyway, in 1941, FDR appointed Durr to the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC. And I said, what in the hell is that? The FCC is the federal agency that regulates who can get broadcast licenses to use the airwaves, which, after all, belong to the public. When I went on the FCC, I knew absolutely nothing about it. But at the time, we were monitoring all the access broadcasts. I did an episode earlier this season called The Inner Front, It talks about how the U.S. government monitored Radio Berlin and Radio Tokyo. 
That was part of the FCC's job during the Second World War. But the content of those enemy broadcasts really changed how Durer and the FCC thought about the power of radio. My God, this is a terrific medium here. This can be magnificent or it can completely ruin you if you get this thing in the wrong hands. So then I began to take a more closer look at American broadcasting. The FCC started enforcing some rules that were on the books, but that had been mostly ignored. And Durr's influence would lead to a new rule that would shape broadcasting for the next half century. In 1949, the FCC established what became known as the Fairness Doctrine. Under the American system of broadcasting, the individual licensees of radio stations have the responsibility for determining the specific program material to be broadcast over their stations. So you could broadcast whatever you wanted, except... This choice, however, must be exercised in a manner consistent with the basic policy of the Congress, that radio be maintained as a medium of free speech for the general public as a whole, rather than as an outlet for the purely personal or private interests of the licensee. The Fairness Doctrine is about the public interest. It says the government has an interest in what radio stations broadcast. It says that on the issues of the day, radio stations have to broadcast more than one view. This requires that licensees devote a reasonable percentage of their broadcast time to the discussion of public issues of interest in the community served by their stations, and that such programs be designed so that the public has a reasonable opportunity to hear different opposition positions. In the 1960s, the Fairness Doctrine was strengthened by way of congressional action, and the Johnson administration added a guarantee for a right of reply after a criticism during a broadcast. It wasn't often enforced, but it did happen sometimes, like when Medgar Evers once got 17 minutes of airtime to respond to criticism of the NAACP, or once when conservatives attacked Kennedy's proposed nuclear test ban treaty Stations were required to play a pro-test ban speech by the president himself. This was exactly the kind of thing that ticked conservatives off. Rules that required listeners to hear more from Edgar Evers, hear more from President Kennedy. All mankind has been struggling to escape from the darkening prospect of mass destruction on Earth. In 1969, the Supreme Court affirmed much of the Fairness Doctrine. But conservatives were getting more and more peeved about it, believing that the Fairness Doctrine suppressed conservative views. By the 1980s, they really wanted to get rid of it. And it was vulnerable because it was a regulation, not a law. In 1985, a new FCC head appointed by President Reagan said he would fight to end the Fairness Doctrine. Two years later, in a bipartisan vote, Congress passed a bill that would have established the doctrine as law. But Reagan vetoed it and Congress didn't have the votes to override his veto. The doctrine was dead. And now, here's Rush Limbaugh. Limbaugh could not have operated if the Fairness Doctrine had still been in place, at least not without worrying that the FCC might come after him, because he used his airtime to promote partisanship. In fact, he was more than a partisan. Limbaugh wanted to be a kingmaker, In 1992, after his preferred candidate, Pat Buchanan, failed to win the nomination, Limbaugh stumped for George Bush Sr. But when Bush lost to Bill Clinton, Limbaugh sounded a battle cry. He made it his mission to take down the Clintons. Both of them. 
The Clintons are running around on this national tour now. You know, I, I don't know how else to say this. I mean, the, the, the president gets away when he says something that isn't true, later being told about, oh yeah, it was an inadvertent statement. The motto of this administration every day is, what can we do to fool them today? Bill Clinton, for sure, did sometimes lie, no question. But fooling people was not the motto of his administration. Clinton got exasperated. You can hear him on St. Louis AM radio, practically begging for a right of reply. After I get off the radio today with you, Rush Limbaugh have three hours to say whatever he wants. And I won't have any opportunity to respond. And there's no truth detector. You won't get on afterward and say what was true and what wasn't. In 1993, Democrats in Congress tried to bring back the Fairness Doctrine. Limbaugh liked to call their effort the Hush Rush Bill. But other people on talk radio didn't see it that way. I'm a proponent of the Fairness Doctrine. That's longtime radio and television host Larry King in 1993. Uh, I like it. I like the fact that we as broadcasters have to be fair. It is not out to get any broadcast. I know Rush Limbaugh thinks they're out to get them. Uh, <laughs> uh, all it means is that a station who has, if you have eight right-wing hosts, you better put some left-wing hosts on. I don't know what's wrong with that. But the Fairness Doctrine was not reinstated. And in 1994, in the midterm elections, Republicans flipped the Senate and the House. It was a wipeout. They took 10 governorships. They won state legislatures. They elected Newt Gingrich, Speaker of the House. The freshman Republicans in the House named Rush Limbaugh an honorary member of their class. And he went to Capitol Hill, where he was besieged by reporters asking him how talk radio had led the conservatives to victory. These reporters who were asking me questions about talk radio were all trying to say, in a roundabout way, that I took a bunch of brainless people and converted them to mind-numbed robots and every day would send out code in my show that would force them to march to the polls on November the 8th and pull the lever I wanted them to pull. Listening to Limbaugh's speech to the freshman Republican members of the House, you can hear them giggling as Limbaugh turned to a new topic. Reports of secret meetings that Bill and Hillary Clinton were holding in the White House. About me. They're trying to come up with a liberal version of me. They're scouring America looking for some liberal host who can automatically end up on 660 radio stations. They think that they can just pluck some liberal out of the sky and put him on the radio and create a bunch of liberal mind-numbed robots. Point taken. Limbaugh's listeners, any listeners, weren't mind-numbed robots. But remember, he asked his listeners to surrender to his point of view. And millions of them did just that. You might not like the Fairness Doctrine. You might want some other sort of guidelines or mechanisms in place. You might want none at all. But whatever your view, you've still got to wrestle with this fact. A democracy can't really work if people only listen to one kind of political opinion all day, every day. Limbaugh was right about one thing, though. In this era with the Fairness Doctrine dead, some people really were looking for a liberal version of him. Not someone who would hush-rush. Someone who would crush-rush. Hey, welcome to the Al Franken Show. I'm Al Franken. The left's answer to Rush Limbaugh would be, for a while, this guy. Alan Stewart Franken, a comedian best known at the time for his work on Saturday Night Live. Franken had written a book called Rush Limbaugh is a Big Fat Idiot, and other observations. It came out in 1996. The audiobook version gives you an idea of Franken's vibe at the time. 
I thought the title, aside from the obvious advantage of being personally offensive to Limbaugh, would sell books. Let me explain why. It makes fun of Rush Limbaugh by pointing out that he's a big lard butt. Franken told C-SPAN he wanted to be Limbaugh's kryptonite. If Rush Limbaugh were to write a book about you, what would its title be? Uh, the guy who got me. The guy who held me accountable. The guy who nailed my ass. Franken owned his comedy style, deadpan, a bit obnoxious, part smart aleck, part frat boy. Here he is talking to an audience of college students. Uh, what I do isn't propaganda. What I do is taking what they say and using it against them. What I do is jujitsu. <laughs> they say something ridiculous and then I subject them to scorn and ridicule. <laughs> That's my job. Franken had a lot in common with Limbaugh. They were both born in 1951. They're both from the middle of the country. Limbaugh's from Missouri. Franken grew up in Minnesota. They both loved to perform. Then there are the differences. Limbaugh dropped out of college. Franken graduated from Harvard. The same year that Franken published Rush Limbaugh as a Big Fat Idiot, a new cable television network started up, Fox News. Its motto was fair and balanced. This was the cable TV version of stuff that Limbaugh and Gingrich had pioneered. Really, you can put everything on early Fox News into one of two bins. The first labeled Limbaugh, the second labeled Gingrich. The coarser stuff, Limbaugh. The more professory stuff, Gingrich. But it was all the same in the end. Lots of opinion monologues, getting viewers to distrust other sources of information, rewriting American history. Meanwhile, talk radio was getting harsher meaner, more vulgar. Limbaugh did a lot of schoolyard name-calling. He called MSNBC PMSNBC. He called U.S. News and World Report U.S. News. Meet the press? Meet the depressed. Things got darker in 1998, when the Monica Lewinsky scandal drove ratings through the roof, both for Fox News and for talk radio. Bill Clinton got caught stooping the intern. Monica Lewinsky, the blue stain dress. All this time, and especially after 9-11, a lot of liberals were still wishing there was a liberal Limbaugh. So they started a new radio network called Air America. Air America would launch all kinds of careers, including Rachel Maddow's. Before joining MSNBC, she had her own Air America show. Al Franken came to Air America from the USO, He'd been going on tours, entertaining the troops overseas, Bob Hope style. He saw that work as a chance to show that right-wingers didn't have a monopoly on patriotism. Franken, like all of Air America, had the idea that left-wing radio would offer listeners the opposition positions that the Fairness Doctrine would have required if it had still been in place, though he didn't put it in such lofty terms. It's about um, answering these fuckheads that have been on the air and lying and uh, uh, delivering this simplistic black and white babble about how the world works as if they know something. And they have built this infrastructure of uh, <sighs> feeding people misinformation about, uh, about economic justice and about how our society is run. 
and it's about time that somebody fought back. Talk to me. Talk about the right wings. Dishonesty. Franken launched his own Air America radio show in 2004. He delivered something surprising, an old-fashioned variety show, sort of Marx Brothers, but about politics, with lots of skits. The Oi Show is brought to you by the Union of Jewish Archaeologists. We look at fossils of oily man and ask, was this a Jew? What Al Franken was doing was different from anything else on the air. Mostly, though, it was different from the Rush Limbaugh show. Everything about Franken's show was designed in opposition to Limbaugh's show. Unlike Limbaugh, who only had guests occasionally, Franken's show featured them. And unlike Limbaugh, Franken invited calls from people who disagreed with him. When Franken did monologues, he often got serious. In the early 60s, we'd watch TV. We'd watch the news. We'd bring our TV trays in there, watch the news. We'd see uh, southern sheriffs sicking police dogs on, on black demonstrators. My dad said, no Jew can be for that. The most important part of Franken's show came when he fact-checked the Rush Limbaugh show. How many people listen to him? 15, 20 million, right? Right, right. Okay, so those people believe him, right? Yeah, okay. So most of his listeners believe that 75% of people making minimum wage are uh, teenagers in their first job. I had our staff look it up. 61.1% of the people earning minimum wage are 20 or over. You know, we got our statistics from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and he got it from the Bureau of Limbaugh's butt. Franken put on a good show, but Air America turned out to be a disaster. The company was underfunded, badly run, beset by financial mismanagement and scandal. Also, the audience for Al Franken's show never got above a million and a half weekly listeners, just a tiny fraction of the audience of the Rush Limbaugh show. There are lots of theories about why left-wing radio failed. One of them is that liberals would rather listen to something more thoughtful and temperate, like NPR. But then again, liberals flocked to Comedy Central, where Jon Stewart's Daily Show and The Colbert Report were very much in the mold of Air America. So I tend to think the problem was the company. Franken jumped ship before the ship sank. In 2007, he went off the air and announced his run for a Senate seat from Minnesota. 2008 was a wild election year. Barack Obama was seeking the Democratic nomination, and after he defeated Hillary Clinton, he made his historic bid for the presidency. Rush Limbaugh turned the fire hose of his fury from the Clintons to the Obamas. He played on air a song called Barack the Magic Negro. Obama decided to let that pass, which is likely why you've never heard of it. Obama won in something close to a landslide, and Al Franken became the new senator from Minnesota. In office, Franken's comedic personality evaporated. He was mostly known for being pretty reasonable, quiet, and hardworking. In addition to providing some budgetary certainty for the next two years, the budget deal undoes some of the extreme across-the-board cuts of the sequester. That will enable us to make more... In 2014, Franken won re-election to the Senate. He was sort of a non-story. Meanwhile, Rush Limbaugh's tirades grew louder and louder. All through Obama's two terms in office, Limbaugh urged obstructionism, the rejection of all compromise. Thank you. 
Let's say, as conservatives, liberals demand that we be bipartisan with them in Congress. What they mean is, we check our core principles at the door, come in and let them run the show, and then agree with them. That's bipartisanship to them. Okay, I've got to stop the tape. I am so sick of this. Al Franken, when he was writing that book about Limbaugh, said it took a real toll on him to have to listen to this guy all the time. I feel that. It's like reading hate mail. To be honest, I find listening to Al Franken pretty grating, too. But when you're researching a historical development, you don't choose the evidence you enjoy. Your job is to listen to all of it. To us, bipartisanship is them being forced to agree with us after we have politically cleaned their clocks and beaten them. And that has to be what we're focused on. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. What? Oh my goodness. Wow. Radio Lab. Whoa. Adventures on the edge of what we think we know. In 2016, Hillary Clinton was running for president against a new opponent. Politicians are all talk and no action. That year, Al Franken spoke at the Democratic Convention, still fighting the far right. I'm Al Franken, Minnesotan. Senator and world-renowned expert on right-wing megalomaniacs. Rush Limbaugh, Bill O'Reilly, and now Donald Trump. And that was the right genealogy. Limbaugh made Trump possible. Trump's whole 
I alone can fix it thing? That was straight Limbaugh. The style of followership that Limbaugh cultivated, those ditto heads, that became Trumpism. Those schoolyard insults, straight Limbaugh. All this led the political outsider, Trump, to an unexpected victory. But long after Trump won, Limbaugh remained fixated on the outgoing president. The first moment that Trump does anything that is the unraveling of an Obama agenda item, Obama's going to be on TV. Hey, you know what? I won't go on TV. I'm a glad you're exclusive. Uh, Trump, Trump's about to destroy Obamacare. I find Limbaugh's prediction super revealing because of how wrong it was. Because, of course, Obama did not go on television and damn Trump's every move. Instead, Obama kept quiet for pretty much all four years of Trump's administration. Obama played by old school rules. The ex-president steps out of politics. The rules that every other American president of whatever party had played by from the beginning. Limbaugh, though, seemed no longer able to imagine that anyone still played by rules. 21st century political warfare is a battle for truth, people like to say. But more and more, I think it has been a battle about doubt. Believe only me. Doubt everyone else. Rush Limbaugh said he was the voice of America. Al Franken tried to fact-check him. Then Donald Trump said he was the voice of America. And then all hell broke loose. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab him by the... After the Access Hollywood tape came out, just before the 2016 election, Trump said it was just locker room talk. Uh, I've been in a lot of locker rooms. Mm -hmm. That's Al Franken on Late Night with Seth Meyers. I, you know, I belong to a health club in Minneapolis. (laughs) I think you can tell. Yeah, we can tell. And uh, our locker room banter is stuff like, Is Trump crazy? (laughs) In the end, though, one politician who would be brought down for Trump's sins would be Al Franken. In 2017, a conservative talk radio host named Leanne Tweeden went on the air at KABC in Los Angeles with a bombshell. Who is your abuser? Uh, Senator Al Franken. It was in 2006. Uh, we were uh, going on a USO tour. He gave me the script, and it, you know, it was full of sexual innuendos, and it was supposed to be funny. You know, Tweeden told the story of how back in 2006, she and Franken had been together in Kuwait backstage at a USO tour, rehearsing for the show. And he mashes his mouth up against mine, and he sticks his tongue in my mouth. And as it happens, it happens so fast, and he puts his tongue in my mouth, and his mouth is just wet and slimy. I was violated. I was disgusted. That's not what I was expecting. Uh, All I could think about was, that's what you wrote that in the script for, so you could do that to me? Also, there was a cringy photo. A photo has surfaced today showing Tweeden asleep on the flight back home, and it reveals Franken groping her. Franken apologized, sort of vaguely. But then, seven other women made accusations against him, mostly about unwanted touching. Pressured by his Democratic Senate colleagues, Franken resigned. His speech on the Senate floor was bitter. I, of all people, am aware that there is some irony in the fact that I am leaving while a man who has bragged on tape 
about his history of sexual assault sits in the Oval Office. When the New Yorker's Jane Mayer reinvestigated the case, Franken told her that he regretted resigning. Seven current and former senators who urged him to resign said they regretted it too. As Mayer told NPR, there were holes in Tweeden's story. She had never been subjected to any fact-checking. She had never produced any corroborators. And I spoke to eight people on that USO tour who had no political agenda. Most of them were in the military, and they were right there. And they just didn't see it the way she saw it. As Mayor pointed out, Leanne Tweeden claimed Franken wrote the controversial skit in 2006 for her. But in fact, and this is indisputable, He wrote it in 2003. Other actresses had played that same role. But something else was lost in the frenzy around Tweeden's allegations. Her employer, KABC, is a conservative talk radio station. Tweeden is a radio personality in the style of Rush Limbaugh. And KABC did not reach out to get a comment from Al Franken about Tweeden's accusations before airing them. Because a right to reply? That was a rule that dated to the forgotten era of the Fairness Doctrine. I'm not saying Al Franken is the hero of this story. He's not. But he isn't the villain either. Hyperpolarized politics will always tend to dualism. Good versus evil. The error of the left is that it keeps joining this game of mayhem instead of restoring the rules. In February of 2020, during his State of the Union address, Donald Trump awarded Rush Limbaugh the nation's highest civilian honor, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Here tonight is a special man, beloved by millions of Americans, who just received a stage four advanced cancer diagnosis. This is not good news, but what is good news is that he is the greatest fighter and winner that you will ever meet. Limbaugh was dying of lung cancer. Al Franken was wandering in the political wilderness. All that year, Trump and Limbaugh kept saying the Democrats were going to steal the 2020 election. But stealing elections was a go-pack golden oldie, a tune Newt Gingrich had played back in 1988. They're going to buy registration. They're going to buy votes. They're going to turn out votes. They're going to steal votes. They're going to do anything they can. Now, you have to understand that. Stop the steal, Gingrich said in 1988. And by 2020, he was saying it all over again, two days after the election. No one should have any doubt. You are watching an effort to steal the presidency of the United States. Joe Biden won, but Donald Trump refused to concede. Then, two months later, on January 6th, the next episode of The Last Archive, I'll go paddling down the many rivers of doubt that dumped us into this sea of political catastrophe, the day when supporters of a defeated president rioted inside the nation's capital. But for now, I'll just say this. Against this backdrop of murder and mayhem, some pillars of right-wing media began to crumble. A corporation that owns talk radio stations across the country ordered its hosts to stop saying the election was stolen and told them instead to induce national calm now. Rush Limbaugh, though, he was having none of it. 
There's a lot of people calling for the end of violence. There's a lot of conservatives, social media, who say that any violence or aggression at all is unacceptable, regardless of the circumstances. I'm glad Sam Adams, Thomas Paine, the actual Tea Party guys, the men at Lexington and Concord didn't feel that way. Rush Limbaugh died six weeks after that broadcast. The king of AM radio left behind an America more bewildered and angry than ever. A nation split by a growing canyon of talk with no bridges of meaning. That canyon looked like it might just swallow up the oldest democracy in the world. The Lost Archive is written and hosted by me, Jill Lepore. It's produced by Sophie Crane McKibben and Ben Nadef-Haffrey. Our editor is Julia Barton, and our executive producer is Mia Lobel. Martine Gonzalez is our engineer. Fact-checking by Amy Gaines. Original music by Matthias Bossi and John Evans of Stellwagen Symphonette. Our research assistants are Kamani Panthier and Lily Richmond. Our foolproof players are Yoshi Amau, Raymond Blankenhorn, Matthias Bossi, Dan Epstein, Ethan Hershenfeld, Becca A. Lewis, Andrew Perella, Robert Ricotta, and Nick Saxton. Special thanks to Brian Rosenwald for his book, Talk Radio's America. We couldn't have written this episode without it. And thanks to Simon Leake. The Last Archive is a production of Pushkin Industries. At Pushkin, thanks to Jacob Weisberg, Heather Fain, John Schnars, Carly Migliori, Christina Sullivan, Eric Sandler, Emily Rostek, Maggie Taylor, Maya Koenig, and Daniela Lacan. Many of our sound effects are from Harry Jeanette Jr. and the Star Jeanette Foundation. If you like the show, please remember to rate, share, and review. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jill Lepore. Hi, Last Archive listeners. I want to tell you about another podcast to add to your queue, The Jordan Harbinger Show. Jordan's podcast is aimed at making you a better informed critical thinker, so you can come to your own conclusions about what's happening in the world. He dives into the minds of fascinating people, from authors and activists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. You might enjoy Jordan's interview with Yuval Noah Harari, the author of Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, or his recent deep dive into modern flat earth theory, and why some still believe the earth is flat despite thousands of years of evidence to the contrary. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you'll find something useful you can apply to your own life in every episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show, whether it's asking for advice the right way or discovering a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B-I-N-G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts.